0: taken to the capital city of Caesarea, and he appeared before two different Roman governors. He appeared before King Herod Agrippa, and all of them determined Paul was innocent. But last week, we saw that Paul, while he was being tried uh, by Festus, he appealed to Caesar. And what that means is that the governor, Festus, had to send him to the capital of the Roman Empire, Rome, to be tried by the emperor Nero himself. And our story today picks up from there. Paul has to be taken to Rome to appear before the emperor. And uh, like last week, uh, we're going to be looking at a a pretty long section of scripture. So we're not going to read the whole thing at the beginning. Uh, We're just going to read Acts 27 and verses 1 through 26. So if you're able, would you please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word? Acts 27, starting in verse 1, the Holy Spirit says, And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some of the other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius, and embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty to Nidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmoni. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive... That the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon, a tempestuous wind, called the Northeaster, struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cotta, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Curtis, they lowered the gear and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men. For I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. So the story of the journey to Rome across the sea is One of the most dramatic scenes in the book of Acts, Luke paints the scene with great detail and he really takes quite a long section to tell this story. But having walked through the first 26 chapters of Acts, we ought to ask the question, why does Luke spend so much time telling this story? I mean, he spends 44 verses just telling about what happens on the sea, and then another 16 verses to get Paul to Rome. So why is he spending so much time on this one story? Uh, Many commentators of Romans who have uh, studied this and, and, and write about it ask that question, Why is he giving so much attention to this? I mean, it's exciting. The storm, the shipwreck, the viper. We'll get to all that in a little bit. But how does that connect to his purpose for writing Acts? How does this connect to everything that we've seen so far? Well, to get at that, let's remember why Paul wrote the book of Acts. At the heart of not only Acts, but also the gospel of Luke, is God's sovereign plan. Jesus described at the end of Luke's gospel how God promised in the Old Testament that the Messiah would suffer and die and would be resurrected and that then salvation would be proclaimed in his name not only to Jews but to Gentiles. Salvation would be given to the nations. And Luke wrote his gospel the Gospel of Luke, so that his readers would have certainty that God kept his word and fulfilled his plan through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And then he wrote this book, the book of Acts, so that his readers would have certainty about how Jesus continued to fulfill God's sovereign plan after his resurrection and ascension. God continues to keep his word as Jesus brings salvation To the nations through his spirit filled witnesses. So, in light of that, what do we have in Acts 27 and 28? God has a sovereign plan to get his witness, Paul, to Rome, to the end of the earth, effectively. And Luke shows how God overcame seemingly insurmountable obstacles to keep his word. Furthermore, along the way, God gives physical salvation, if you will, not only through this storm at sea, but then also, we'll see, once they reach land, there's a physical type of salvation that comes about. And so, as Luke sat down to write the account of this story, which he experienced firsthand, as we just read, he sits down, and he meditates on this treacherous journey that they all took to Rome, and he looks back on the story, and he sees God had a sovereign plan. God promised salvation. God kept his word. God blessed Gentiles. Well, wait a minute. That sounds an awful lot like a small version of what God was up to from a global scale, and so... As he wrote Acts 27 and 28, he chose to write the story in a particular way, highlighting God's sovereignty, highlighting the physical salvation that resembles the full salvation of the gospel, highlighting how God kept his word, and highlighting how this salvation was a blessing to Gentiles. And he wrote this in that particular way so that you and I would have certainty that the God who kept his word to get Paul safely to Rome is the God who will keep his word to bring salvation to the world, and he's the God who will keep his word in our lives as well. So let's walk through Acts 27 and 28 together and behold the God who always keeps his word. I'm going to look at this passage in three scenes. Uh, and they get shorter as they move along. The first scene is in chapter 27, and it's Sovereign Salvation Through the Sea. Sovereign Salvation Through the Sea. So as we read, Paul and other prisoners were to be taken to Rome by sea under the supervision of a centurion and some other soldiers. Luke himself was on this journey, as well as Aristarchus, who is another of uh, Paul's travel companions that we've seen in Acts. And uh, they gradually make their way up the coast of the Mediterranean. Uh, We've got a map to show you the, uh, the full journey that they took. So you can see all the way on the right side, Caesarea is where they started. And then they slowly make their way along the coast of the Mediterranean to start. They sailed slowly, Luke tells us, with great difficulty until they made it all the way to the island of Crete. And once they got there, Paul, who is an experienced sea traveler, we know from other places in scripture, he he warned them that just from his opinion that leaving the harbor at that time of year was going to be dangerous. But the centurion who had to make the call listened to the sailors instead of the preacher, and you would too, and he decided to find a different harbor to spend the winter out. But when they left Crete, only intending to go from Fair Havens to Phoenix, they left there, and this violent wind came upon them that they could not withstand. It came from the northeast, and it forced them westward, and they were not able to get back to shore. So this, this fierce wind drove them out to sea, and they experienced this uh, fierce, tempestuous storm. And they did everything they could along the way to secure the ship. They jettisoned cargo. But verse 20 tells us just how dire their outlook was. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. They had given up all hope. And that's when Paul stood up and shared a message From God. So that night, God sent an angel to tell Paul that no one on board was going to die in this storm. Even contrary to what Paul, just in his personal opinion, had told them at the beginning of this trip. But the angel from God said, God has a definite sovereign plan for Paul. He had to stand before Caesar. This was God's sovereign plan. So God promised to save everyone aboard the ship. So Paul shares this message with the sailors and the soldiers and his fellow prisoners. He says, men, take heart. I have faith that God will keep his word. So there's a storm, but there's a promise. And let's see how the story continues in verses 27 to 38. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. So more time has passed. Darkness continues. The storm rages on. And so the sailors decide they're going to save themselves. But Paul warns the centurion when he realizes this is happening. And he says, you cannot be saved unless they stay in the ship. Now, wait a minute, though. Isn't this the same guy who just promised that God was going to save them? And now he's saying you can't be saved unless they stay in the ship. Well, we get a window here into the relationship between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. The angel said to Paul, you must Stand before Caesar. That was God's sovereign plan that would not fail. Yet, the sailors had to stay in the boat or the plan wouldn't be accomplished. God accomplishes his sovereign plan. But that does not mean that our choices don't matter. God carries out his sovereign plan through human choices. And we'll only see that further as we continue in this passage. After uh, the the centurion ensures that the sailors stay on board, Paul then leads all those on board in a significant act of faith. So their storm-tossed journey had been such that they hadn't been eating like they should. So Paul says, let's eat. Why? Because they were going to be saved. I mean, if you're going to die any minute, Who cares about food? But they were going to make it to the end of the journey. But to get there, they were going to need their strength. They needed the strength to keep going. In fact, that word strength is usually translated salvation. Again, God is sovereign, but man is responsible. They're going to be saved, but they need their strength to make sure they get there to be saved. So they ate together. And as an act of faith, that God would keep his word to save them. But the eating wasn't the only act of faith. Right after that, as another act of faith, they threw the rest of their wheat into the sea. They were so confident that they would make it to shore that they threw that out knowing that they would get there before they needed that, and they trusted God for their next meal. Well, then that brings us to the end of the saga on the sea in verses 39 to 44. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that had tied the rudders, then hoisting the foresail to the wind they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground, The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. So as this journey is nearing its end, uh, the sailors were planning to run the ship ashore. But before they could get to shore, they struck a reef and the boat began to be broken up. So the soldiers, seeing the situation, decided to kill the prisoners because they were going to be in trouble if any of the prisoners got away. But the centurion wanted to save Paul, and he stopped them from doing this. And again, we see God's sovereign protection through the choices of humans. But ultimately, as we come to the end of this salvation on the sea, everyone on board was able to make it to land. Everyone, by the sovereign hand of God, all 276 individual souls on board were safe, just as he said they would be. They were all saved. Not one was lost, and they found themselves on the island of Malta, which brings us to our second scene, Miracles on Malta. And just for perspective, let's look at that map again and see where Malta lies. Uh, You can see there, uh, we don't know exactly, of course, what their route was uh, from Fair Havens all the way to Malta westward. uh, And they frankly don't either. (laughs) Um, But Malta right there uh, on the the western portion of that map is where they landed. And uh, next we see miracles on Malta starting in Acts 28 verse 1. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. So the Maltese people, uh, they're called here the native people. It's a a word that can be translated elsewhere, barbarian. You see Greek and barbarian. This just means uh, Gentiles who couldn't speak Greek. The Maltese people showed hospitality to their unexpected guests, and they built them a fire so that they'd come out of the, the cold and the wet and warm up and uh, Paul's trying to add sticks to the fire and a snake comes out and bites and fastens on to his hand. And so of course the these native uh, Maltese people think this this must be a bad omen from the gods. This is someone who deserves punishment and and justice has brought this snake to take his life. He must be a murderer. And then Paul shakes it off into the fire and immediately on a dime they change their opinion about him it, like Oh no, he's not a murderer, he's a god. But he wasn't a murderer, and he wasn't a god, he was a witness. And just like back in the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus uh, sent out and brought back the 72 in Luke 10, 19, Jesus told them, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall hurt you. This was something that wasn't given to Paul because of how bad he was. It wasn't given, and he wasn't saved because of how good he was. He overcame this not in his own strength, but because Jesus allowed him to survive this for his glory to point to his representative appointed by him to carry his message. It was a miracle that happened to give glory to Jesus. But this isn't the only miracle that happened on Malta. Let's keep on reading in verses 7 through 10. Now, in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him healed him and when this had taken place the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured they also honored us greatly and when we were about to sail they put on board whatever we needed so this group ends up being hosted for 3 days by the, the chief of the island Publius uh, but Publius's father was sick and so Paul Jesus's representative goes into him, and he laid his hands on him and healed him. And of course, news of a miraculous healing spreads quickly, and now all the sick people from the island start coming to Paul. And through Paul, Jesus healed them as well. You know, we've seen this time and time again throughout the book of Acts, how miracles, like healings, were signs that pointed to the truth of the gospel. The signs weren't the point in and of themselves. They were pointers to the truth of the gospel. Jesus came to the world to save a world corrupted by sin. Corrupted by sin in a variety of ways, not just corrupted spiritually, but corrupted physically. And in his death and resurrection, he defeated sin, the root cause of all of the brokenness In the world. And his salvation will not be fully realized until the day that his redeemed people live in a new heaven and a new earth where there will be no more sickness, no more disease, no more sorrow, and no more death. He will bring not just a spiritual salvation, but a physical salvation, a whole, full salvation. And so in Jesus' ministry and in his continued ministry through his apostles, healings like this were a little preview, a foretaste of the full redemption of creation that was coming. It was a pointer to the fact that Jesus' death and resurrection had defeated the root cause of all of the brokenness, sin itself. So Jesus continued this ministry of miracles, That he had first done in his earthly ministry through his apostles to affirm the truthfulness of their message, the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. Well, after all that Jesus had accomplished through Paul on the island, the Maltese people were thrilled and they thought very highly of Paul and all of his companions. They honored them and they provided everything that they would need for the rest of their journey. And that takes us to our final scene reaching Rome. Reaching Rome in Acts 28, verses 11 through 16. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at uh, Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day we came to pateli uh, sorry and there we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for 7 days and so we came to rome and the brothers there when they heard about us came as far as the forum of appius and three taverns to meet us on seeing them paul thanked god and took courage and when we came into rome paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him? Well, so after spending uh, the whole winter on Malta, the centurion found a ship that would get them the rest of the way. So let's look at that map one last time and see this last leg of their journey uh, from the island of Malta all the way up to Rome. You can see the different stops along the way. They sailed north, eventually came to uh, a town in Italy, and they got there and they found fellow believers, Christians. The gospel had already reached Italy at this point, And they were permitted to have fellowship with their brothers in Christ for a week. And, of course, ultimately, God got Paul to Rome. And at this point, Paul had already written his letter to the Romans, and so the Roman believers knew who Paul was. And some of them, Luke tells us, even met him on the way. They heard that Paul was being brought to Rome, and so they wanted to see him, and they, they couldn't wait for him to get there. So they met him on the way, and they gave Paul encouragement, even as he was being transported as a prisoner. And then finally, when Paul did get to Rome, he was given quite decent conditions. He was placed under house arrest rather than in a prison and allowed to stay alone with his guard. Paul made it to Rome because God kept his word. Well, so stepping back, as I said at the beginning, this is a story about God's sovereign plan. This is a story about salvation, It's a story about God keeping his word, and it's a story about blessing coming to Gentiles. And again, Luke tells this true historical story in a way that echoes what God was up to from a global perspective. But the way that Luke wrote this story echoes other stories as well. It echoes several, but let me just highlight three. First, Luke tells the story in a way that echoes Israel after the exodus. In both stories, an angel brings God's appointed representative assurance of God's sovereign plan to bring salvation. In both stories, God keeps his word and brings about seemingly impossible salvation through the sea. In both stories, the people ate bread but didn't keep any leftovers but had to trust God for their next meal. In both stories, there were encounters with deadly serpents that God provided spiritual protection from. That's the parallel with Israel. But second, Luke tells this story in a way that echoes the story of Jonah. When you think of God's messenger on a storm at sea, it's probably the first story that comes to mind. In both stories, God has a sovereign plan to get his messenger to a destination. In both stories, God provides salvation through the sea as sailors are jettisoning cargo. Although with Paul, they were saved as long as he stayed in the ship. With Jonah, the sailors were saved because they got God's prophet out of the ship. But regardless, God brought salvation through the sea. And in the end, in both stories, God sovereignly got his messenger to his intended destination. And they brought salvation to Gentiles. That was what Jonah was reluctant to do and Paul was eager to do. But finally, Luke tells this story in a way that even echoes his own gospel. And we've looked already at some of the parallels between the Gospel of Luke and Acts. But consider this. In both books, in both stories, the main character had to go to Jerusalem to suffer. In both stories, an innocent man is arrested and tried before the Roman governor, Pilate, Festus, and King Herod, two different Herods, same role. In Luke, Jesus is encouraged by an angel when he prays on the night he's betrayed. In Acts, Paul's encouraged by an angel on the ship. In both stories, an innocent man is led away with criminals. In Luke, Jesus refused to save himself in order to save the world. In Acts, those on board had to choose not to save themselves so that everyone could be saved. In both stories, there's darkness during the daytime. In both stories, a centurion is sympathetic toward an innocent prisoner. In both stories, the main character takes bread and gives thanks and breaks it and eats it. In both stories, the main character is used by God to bring salvation to Gentiles. By telling this story with echoes of these other stories, Luke is telling us, God came through again. God came through and he kept his word about Israel. God kept his word about Jonah. God kept his word about Jesus. God kept his word about Paul. And time and time again, God has proven that he is faithful. And if God came through in the past, he will come through in the future Time and time again, God has proven that he is faithful and that he will keep his word. And so how do we respond to the sovereign God who keeps his word? By remembering God's word and walking in the faith that God will keep his word. Living as if we really expect God to come through and do what he said he would Do. Now remember what we saw throughout this story is that God is sovereign and man is responsible. We see the truth of God's sovereignty, and and it might be tempting to think that, well, you know, God is faithful to his word, so I can just kick back and relax and do nothing, right? But that's not at all what scripture calls us to do. The response of humans who are responsible to a God who is sovereign is to step out in faith, to walk in faith, trusting God to do what he said he would do. Let me just give you a few examples of what this looks like. Maybe you've never trusted in Jesus to save you from your sins. You need to know that Jesus died to take the punishment that your sins deserve. And God's word says that Jesus' death is enough to save you. You need to know God's word says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So, step out in faith and give your life to Jesus, trusting that God will keep his word to save you, just as he said. Maybe you've been indulging in something that you know is sinful. But you keep going back to it because you think it will make you happy. Well, God's word says, Blessed or happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. When we try to find satisfaction in sin, our actions reveal that our hearts don't have faith. That God really means it when he says that Jesus is better than sin. So, step out in faith and repent of that sin, trusting that God will keep his word to satisfy you in Christ. Maybe you're struggling with anxiety over finances, and that's caused you to be slow to give to others. Well, God's word says your heavenly father knows what you need. God's word says seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So step out in faith and live generously for the glory of God, trusting that God will keep his word to provide for your needs. Those are just some examples. I don't know what promise of God you need to believe today, but I can promise you that he will keep it. And so our response is to live in faith in a faithful God. He has showed us time and time again that he is faithful. He has a sovereign plan, and he will keep his word. So let's take God at his word. Let's take God at his word and really trust him to do what he says he will do. There is no promise so great that he can't keep it. There's no storm too violent for him to overcome. There's no sickness too strong for him to heal. And there is no sinner too far away from him to save. Our God is faithful. So let's trust him to keep his word. Let's pray together. Father, you are sovereign, you are faithful, and you have kept your word over and over and over. God, you are the God who made promises in the garden, and you have kept them. You are the God who made promises to Abraham, and you have kept them. You are the God who made promises to Moses, and you have kept them. You're the God who made promises to David, and you kept them. You're the God who made promises through your son, Jesus Christ, and you have kept them. You're the God who has kept his word time and time and time again. And Lord, even in Acts 27 and 28, you said you were going to do it, and you did it. You brought Paul to Rome by your faithfulness and your sovereign hand. And so, Lord, may we see your revelation of yourself in Scripture, and would we, with our whole hearts, believe that you are the same God today that you were then, that you are still sovereign, you are still faithful, you still keep your word. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't just know it, that we would believe it, that we would trust you, and that, Lord, we would manifest our trust by stepping out in faith and living like we believe you really will come through, and you really will keep your word. Lord, I pray that you, through your word, by your spirit, would give us grace to have the eyes of our hearts enlightened such that we would have a bigger view of you and therefore greater trust in you for your glory. We love you and praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand together.